Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Lebo Mashile, who is an award winning poet, author, presenter, actress, and producer. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amalia. It's a pleasure to be here. Reflecting on your life's journey for a moment, during the apartheid years, your parents lived in exile in the United States where you were born and later you returned to South Africa in the mid-1990s at the end of apartheid. And you then started to study law and international relations at the University of the Witwatersrand, but gradually became more and more interested in the arts. Please, can you tell us about that transition of going from studying law to moving into the field of the arts? Mm. So, yes, you're quite right. My parents were uh, both in exile. My father left in the late 60s uh, because he wanted to study engineering and that opportunity was not available to black students in South Africa at the time. My mother left in 76. She was a law student at Teflo at the University of the North, and she was also involved in student politics at the time. She was a, a, a member and a follower of the Black Consciousness Movement, um, as were her siblings as well. So within the space of about 18 months, I think out of like five of my mom's siblings, four of them were in exile. So um, my mom left because she, she really had to leave. They met in the U.S., interestingly, at a memorial that was held by the South African exile community for Robert Sobukwe. And um, I followed very shortly thereafter. Uh, So I was born in America. I spent the bulk of my childhood in America, with the exception of a very brief period of about a year or two when my mom was completing her studies and I was sent to Soweto to live with my grandparents. I did all of my primary schooling and half of high school in the US. And then when I was 16, my family moved back to South Africa. Uh, This also was necessitated by the fact that my parents' marriage was breaking up. And so a lot changed. I mean, the country was changing, but my family dynamic also was being ripped apart. Um, So I guess, you know, unlike many people who were euphoric at the idea of coming back in the 90s. I wasn't. I was 16. My dad was AWOL. My mother was a single mother. We were living in a back room in Soweto at my grandparents' house. I was going to school and wearing uniform for the first time on the other side of the moon in suburbia and doing that great trek from the township to the burbs that so many Black children do. And I felt really isolated and alone and terrified and sad and heartbroken against the backdrop of this newly liberated country that was going through this monumental moment of just euphoria and joy and, you know, just utter jubilation, you know. Um, I... I didn't experience that. I was experiencing something else while all of that was happening. But, you know, I guess after I finished high school and when I got to university and I had more independence and I was starting to negotiate Johannesburg on my own as a young person, 
I found myself in the Johannesburg arts and culture scene, which was a really vibrant, uh, eclectic, dynamic space at the time. I mean, if you think about it, South Africa was experiencing a cultural revolution at that time. And Johannesburg, you know, being the the kind of epicenter, the lifeblood of this country. You know, that cultural revolution was pulsating in the streets of Joburg. Um, so just as a young person who was exploring and looking for entertainment and fun things to get up to, I found myself in the middle of this cultural scene. And that's how I discovered the poetry scene. That's how I discovered the live art scene. On any given night in Johannesburg in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, you could go out and find some really experimental, exciting live art to engage with, whether it was, you know, live bands or poetry or theater. And I got lost in this. And when I discovered the poetry scene, I realized that this is what I want to do with my life. When I hear you talking, I can hear the enthusiasm, the exuberance, and I always consider that the arts are a cultural depiction of, of what is happening in society in a period of time, whether it is uh, lyrically from poems or from lines of, of music, a, a piece so vibrant um, and, and always topical. So you moved into the poetry scene. And if I look back on the variety in your career, I mean, you've, you've done all sorts from being in the film Hotel Rwanda to being on stage with Selo uh, Dyker's The Quiet Violence of Dreams, as well as, and please help me with pronunciation, Inyang Dansa? The stage adaptation of Pamela Nomveta's autobiography, Inyang Dansa. Uh, working with Pamela actually inspired me to create the stage adaptation of um, Sarki Bartman's life, The Venus versus Modernity. But yeah, you're quite right. My work has straddled television and theater, film, um, live performance, the recording arts as well. I'm a voiceover artist. I've made albums. But the chord that runs through everything that I do is poetry. What would you say are some of the core milestones in your career? Because you kind of, the core is poetry, but you've been pulled into so many, let's say, nuances that are derivatives of poetry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've shared my work in 33 countries to date. I've won several awards throughout my career. Most re recently, um, the South African Literary Awards Award for my body of work, which I think is um, a huge achievement for me because it uh, acknowledges like the full scope of what it is that I do. I'm probably best known in this country for a television show that I did right at the beginning of my career called Latitude, which was a travel documentary series for SABC One which was quite groundbreaking and ahead of its time. I haven't seen anything like that on television since. And that is what made me a household name. But I think it's also quite remarkable, you know, when I kind of step outside myself and look at myself, like as a Black woman feminist 
artist, a poet from Africa to be able to build a life doing what I do, you know, to be to be known and recognized in my country and in other places as a poet in a country where the arts are marginal, let alone poetry, you know, I feel like I'm a student of what it is that I do. And that has allowed me to be able to adapt and to, and to evolve. Um, most recently, I find theater to be a very exciting space for, to explore and to create because theater as a medium is a house for so many other mediums. You can do anything in theater. You can bring film into theater or fashion into theater. Uh, theater is, is based on the written word. So, you know, it allows for, for poetry to live and breathe, but it also allows for characterization. Um, most recently, I worked on a project with the University of Johannesburg, a collaboration between the University of Johannesburg and Malmo University in Sweden, um, a site-specific work for children uh, which was staged just outside the Windybrow Theatre in Hillbrow. And I, I performed for kids for the very first time in my career at 44 years old. I created a work, we created a work for children. Um, I mean, poetry is quite dense and the themes that I explore in my work can be quite hard. So I have two children, I'm a mom, and it's kind of difficult sometimes to find opportunities for them to be able to see my work that they can relate to. Um, so it was wonderful to be able to have them to see this particular work. What are the core themes that you focus on in your poetry? Identity, gender, how movement, uh, movement like as in transition space, trans transitioning through spaces, emigrating, how that shapes identity, how that colors the lens through which we see the world, um, spirituality, uh, and also now, now that I'm a mom, motherhood as well. Yeah, and politics. I mean, I guess everything is political. The personal is political, but politics keeps coming back in my work as well. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity. And today we're talking to Lebel Mashila, who is an award-winning poet, author, presenter, actress, and producer. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. You spoke about one of the pieces that you'd put together being the life story of, of Saki Bartman. I, I often feel pain when I hear her name. Mm. To give some context to our listeners, uh, Saki Bartman was uh, a, a <clears throat> sign woman who was exhibited really as a, as a freak show attraction in Europe under the name Hottentot Venus during the early 1800s. And after her death, her body cast was still put on display up until the mid-1970s. And eventually, only in 2002, her remains were repatriated to South Africa. So when I think about her story, there's two main words that come to mind, and one is sexism and the other is slavery. Please tell us what motivated you to put together her life story. I was, I think, about 20 or 21 when Tarki's body was brought back to South Africa. And it was a huge news story. I was at university at the time. It was remarkable to me that I was learning for the very first time about this extraordinary woman who had been through this harrowing experience. But at the same time, I also, even at that phase of my life, I recognized how her experience was a reflection of what I was experiencing as a young woman. So from that time, the last 20 plus years, 
Sarki has been a primary reference point for my understanding of Black female representation. And, you know, as a woman who has worked in media, who's worked as a performer, who's worked in public spaces, as much as I have not positioned myself in a way that centers my appearance as a kind of tool of, of, of my uh, expression of survival, you know, and not to knock women who do because, hey, you know, if you got it and you want to make money off of it, fantastic, it's your choice. Um, but I have not been able to run away from the fact that as a woman and as a Black woman, especially, our bodies are centered before anybody looks at what it is that you have to say, what you think, who you are. Um, I've had to deal with all kinds of discrimination and abuse in my in my work life, you know, from fat phobia, you know, um, I mean, now and that this phase of my life, ageism, I'm constantly coming back to Sarki to understand that the dehumanization that I and other Black women experience in the world is nothing new. It is a, a fundamental part of the white supremacist and patriarchal project. And Sarki, I think, is kind of like a, a gateway, a rite of passage, the archangel, the archetype for all of this that we, that we have to go back to understand, to really understand why we're in the position that we're in right now. So I see different versions of Sarki everywhere that I look. Her, her silhouette, uh, her experience is still replicated in so many different ways. She has many, many daughters. She has many, many, many iterations throughout history and now. So when I created this piece, I wanted to show that when Sarki was put on display in Europe, uh, okay, so Sarki was taken from South Africa at the age of, uh, I think she was about 20, actually, she was abducted from her home community in the Hamtos River Valley when she was 15 years old. Slavers came into her community. They raised the community to the ground, killed everybody, and then hauled her to Cape Town. So she was 15 years old and found herself in the Cape as an indentured servant slash slave. And then at 20 was taken from the Cape to Europe. Within months, Sarki was one of the most famous people in, in Europe. I mean, she was a reference point for fashion designers, for political satirists. She performed for the famous, for the rich, for the royals. At the peak of her fame, she was doing, I think something like 10 shows a day at Piccadilly Circus, was making no money off of this. Her handler who had brought her to Europe was making all of the money. So you have this woman who is hugely visible, but also at the same time silent. And I found this to be very, very interesting, how fame and hypervisibility for women and for Black women in particular is also a form of violence, that you can be super visible, but also silenced and invisible at the same time. And I needed to unpack that in my own personal life. So this is why I created this piece. Don't you think, though, that there's still these parallels that perpetuate today, that inevitably there is a man in power 
And here's the one that is making more of the money. And women who are doing the performances are, are not receiving their fair share. And I think that so much of our rights, especially in the creative arts, is ceded and given away to other people. Absolutely. Often for survival, out of desperation. I mean, these, these abusive patterns are also really built into the very foundation of the arts and entertainment world, you know? Um, I mean, if you look at the dance companies of old or the theater companies of old and the culture of patronage, patrons would pay to keep these theaters alive and dancers and actresses were seen as party packs for patrons. One of the perks of being a patron of the arts was being able to have unlimited sexual access to which artist you wanted to, mostly female, you know? So these, these abusive uh, patterns that, that really minimize the humanity of creative people are built into the architecture of the environments in which we work. And the more you challenge it, the more you become, you know, labeled difficult, a loud mouth, the more you're isolated. And I think for me, that has been the real impetus to acquire as many skills as I can, and also to try as much as possible to produce and to work independently, you know, and not be dependent on somebody else to give me a voice. What would you say have been some of the gender challenges that you've experienced in the industry, whether it's from an aspect of, of pay to stereotypes to roles that you've had to undertake and, and also job stability? Because, I mean, in this industry, especially when you look from a South African point of view, there doesn't seem to be nearly enough opportunity going around. Yes, that, that is certainly true. I mean, the challenges were right from the beginning, you know. I grew up in the clubs. That's where I cut my teeth as an artist on the underground art scene. Um, and the sexism was rife from back then, you know. You had to really be tough to get on stage and to fight for your voice. And I found that, you know, that training has um, has helped me throughout my career, whether it was, you know, dealing with we did an episode on uh, the Jacob Zuma rape trial in 2006, which I think, you know, probably changed the course of my career from there on out. You know, it became very difficult. I had a top rated show on the biggest channel in the country at the time. But I was miserable making that show because of the stand that I had taken in support of Kwesi. I felt, I acutely felt this tension between being committed to my voice and what it is that I stand for and what I believe to be true and what I believe will stand the test of time because I think that's really important as an artist, right? That we're not just making work for today. We're making work for tomorrow. We're making work for a hundred years from now. So is what I'm saying now, will it be true to me? I can be proud of who it is that I am 50 years from now so that my grandchildren, when they're looking at this, will be proud of who I am. The tension between that and survival in a rabidly misogynistic and racist country. I know that being who I am and taking the positions that I've taken 
and has probably put a ceiling on the kind of opportunities that I can have, you know. Um, and that's apart from, you know, with the work that I do get, we still are dealing with the wage gap, which is what like sometimes, you know, women earn between 25 and 33% less than men for doing the exact same work. I find myself in a position now being booked for work and I have to ask deliberately, okay, who are the men who are working on this job? And then having to check, you know, are these men who have been publicly figured as people or publicly exposed as people who have uh, been accused of GBV, have been accused of rape, you know? I mean, these are things that you constantly have to contend with. Um, I, I, mean, I find myself in constant conversation with, you know, colleagues about this as well. Um, so I, in, in, a, in a society like this, you know, being principled um, means that you are sacrificing power, you're sacrificing your prosperity, you know, you're sacrificing your reputation in some regards. But I find solace in the fact that the stands that I have taken, as I get older, as the years go on, I find that time almost inevitably always vindicates me. And I take a lot of solace in that. And I think that's that's one of the biggest challenges of being an artist is is, you know, being a visionary is being ahead of your time. It's seeing what other people cannot see at, at that specific time um, and taking the risk of honoring that vision, even when other people can't see it. Um, but, you know, it, it's part of the deal. That's what it means. This really speaks to your personal integrity, to your authenticity, to your values. And it really is a challenge, as you say, sticking up for your principles versus putting food on the table. I mean, you, you can't even compare the two components together. But these are conversations that we have to dialogue with ourselves continuously as we negotiate our space and the opportunities that we say yes to or, or say no to. And what the ripple effect is, as you say, years down the line being vindicated, but at that point in time, no one's got a crystal ball as they're making those decisions. No, no, nobody's got a crystal ball and no one is clapping for you. And when you are vindicated as well, no one comes back and says, oh, by the way, you were right. Or at least they don't say it to your face, you know. But I guess I don't want to be the norm. I don't want to be the status quo. I don't want to be mainstream, you know? Um, it, it's, 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 it's painful uh, because I mean, everybody wants to belong, but what does belonging mean? Does belonging mean, you know, going along with everything that is happening around me? Like. I can't, I, I just, I physically cannot. And I think that's also why I've built up this arsenal of skills. I have to do a lot of things to be able to survive, you know? I earn a living as, as a speaker, as a facilitator, as a script writer, as a voiceover artist, as an MC, as a performer, as an actress. You know, I've had to figure out how to use the skills that I have and remix them and multiply them in order to be able to make a living. And I think that that has made me quite formidable, you know? So inadvertently, the, the challenges and the adversity that has come with being the, the artist and the person that I am has also built me, you know? It's been an edifying experience. And this is also why it's so painful when you hear somebody like, you know, Naledi Pandor, who I hold in such high esteem, like say that, you know, the continent needs other kinds of skills not artists not any more artists like 
when you make a statement like that as a leader, and she happens to be a leader that I genuinely respect, you know, I think she's one of the few people who, well, up until I heard her statements that I believe that she is one of the few people who genuinely has a deep appreciation of the humanities. So when you hear somebody like that say that, you know, it's like, wow, you don't even have a clue of the fraction of skills that I am juggling at any given moment just to survive. The complexity of what it takes to survive as a creative on this con continent, the kind of resilience and resources and abilities that you need to be able to survive. Two points that come to mind when you're saying this. One is I reflect on a conversation with Sibongile Kumalo, and she was talking about the arts, not just from a creative point of view, but she said as a soft skills development. She said, for instance, the appreciation of learning and being in tune and in touch with other people that are around you, the ability to listen, the ability to respond and playing off one another as you collaborate and produce something as a collective. So these are, are really skills that are, are the intangibles. And then the next piece that I wanted to comment on, and I'd like you to expand on this further, because I think it's such an important learning component, is the idea of being able to repurpose your skills, to be able to build resilience. Because we know in this country that unemployment is, I think when I last looked, especially in youth, it's sitting on around about 45%. The reality yes. is jobs are not going to come to you. You have to no make yourself marketable. So if you can just Absolutely. talk about that, what do you do? How, how do you do this to be so marketable and really expand your portfolio of skills? I, I agree wholeheartedly with what Spomila Kumalo said. And I would also add that, you know, the arts are critical to the self-development of any human being on the planet. The access to culture is a human right. You know, the creation of culture, by definition, is one of the hallmarks that defines a civilization. So we measure our humanity by our ability to create, to make culture, to make language, to make music. And this is, this is inextricably linked to our intellectual development, our emotional development, our development as a society. We are struggling right now as a society to hold complexity. You know, we are struggling with how do we, how do we find ourselves nearly 30 years into this democracy? And we are so far from the goals that we have set for ourselves. How do we hold the complexity of looking at people who were a part of our liberation movement? Movement, who have become corrupt leaders? How do you how do you find a vessel to hold the, the 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 decisions that were made by these individuals? And how do we interrogate that with compassion for ourselves, for these people, and with a way forward? You can't do that without creativity. You can't do that without applying critical thinking. You know, it's it's not a nice to have. It is absolutely essential. You know, when every day when, when I get up and I go to work, if I go to a rehearsal or if I go to set or if I find myself in studio, I'm working with people who are highly skilled. Some of them are educated in this field. Um, some of them are not, are just are, are talented and are skilled. But we find ourselves in the same space and we have to make work. We have to make it work. 
And this is what I find very exciting about this space. Uh, I think talent is a great equalizer because talent can appear anywhere. But, but what allows for talent to be able to bear fruit is access. And that is what we have denied people. We've denied the majority of people in this country access to culture. We have artists in South Africa that are, are really are making tremendous waves all over the world. People who have been touring this planet you know, for decades upon decades and who are not known here at home, who would not receive the same opportunities that they get in Europe and in the West. Here in Africa, even though South Africa produced them, I would not be the artist that I am were it not for South Africa, the material, the spiritual, the political conditions that have made it possible for me to be who I am only exist here, you know? So why is it that this country cannot sustain us? I think that, and you're quite right, you know, I mean, we are, we are in an era of, you know, kind of unprecedented socioeconomic crisis. I've not seen anything like what we are experiencing in my lifetime. And I know that it's not just South Africa. I know that it's global. Um, but, you know, I guess COVID exposed the fault lines in every country in the world, right? And our fault lines are deep and old, you know? It's, it, our fault lines are inequality and, and you know, gender-based violence and, you know, these, these scourges on our society and on our humanity that go deep into the heart of, of colonialism and slavery and the historical experiences that we've had in this country, right? But the fact is, the solutions that were applied to building the economy 30, 40, 50 years ago are not going to work now. Apartheid failed not because people had some more big moral awakening. Apartheid failed because it was economically dysfunctional. You cannot build a functioning economy if the majority of people do not have access to education and to high-level skills. So... When I started out as an artist, I was told by everybody, 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 that I would not be able to make a living doing what I love. Everyone said, you're wonderful, you're so good. Come and perform, perform for free. But you'll never be able to make a living doing this. I'm so sorry, there's nobody who makes a living as a poet. I mean, my mother was a single mother. I knew that, you know, I don't have the privilege of somebody to support me. I have to make this work. I have to make this work. And I realized I have an ability with language and I have an ability to connect with people. What do these two abilities allow me to do? If I get an opportunity that comes back to somehow the distillation of these two skills, my ability with language and my ability to connect with humans, then I can be able to survive. And I still apply that to my life right now. So. One of my favorite people was um, the former poet laureate of South Africa, the late Kyorapetsa Khusitsile, who was a dear friend and mentor to me. And, you know, he would walk into a room, even when he was the, the poet laureate of South Africa, and he would introduce himself as a student of literature. And I see myself as a student of my craft. I see myself, every job is a new job. And I work in an industry where you're only as good as your last job. You know, you can't rest on your laurels from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Nobody cares. We're thinking about yesterday's gig. So 
the challenge of constantly repurposing, reinventing, finding the ways to reignite new energy into what it is that I'm always, into what it is that I've always done is an essential part of what it is that I do. Um, and I think now with new technology as well, I mean, you look at, you know, the, the kind of challenge that AI poses to the creative industries. Um, you look at the, the right to strike in America. You look at the proliferation of streaming platforms, what that means for script writers, the, the accelerating demand for content on all platforms. You know, this is an era where it's like the devaluation of creativity and the essential need for creativity to fuel the creative industries are coming up against each other in an explosion. And I think that this is essential. It has to absolutely happen. So I see technology as a new frontier also for my work. It's a learning and exploring and integrating technology into my work has been a constant part of my work from the time that I started. It is such an exciting time to be alive. Definitely in your field. So what's next for you? Gosh, oh, wow. That's always such a hard question to answer. Um, I'm excited about archiving right now. You know, I think I'm at a phase in my in my life and in my career where it's important for me to be able to mark my journey, to mark all the things that I've done, to make sure that all of my work is available. Uh, archiving is a major challenge for artists. And I think it also, again, comes back to survival issues. So many of us are just preoccupied with the making of work and the making of work is so hard. We tend to just focus on that. I would like to figure out how to use technology to make it possible to make my work more widely available to people. That's what I'm thinking about. COVID has also made it possible to use technology to collapse borders. You know, COVID has forced me to integrate technology in my work in a way that I never thought was possible and that I find incredibly exciting. So I'm spending a lot more time in the studio. I'm spending a lot more time recording. As a performer, each medium presents a new challenge uh, in terms of how to express oneself in it. Uh, you have to apply different skills to different mediums to be able to be read and understood in those mediums. How I perform for camera is very different to how I perform on stage, is very different to how I perform for the ear. Um, I'm also realizing that I'm 44, so I'm in this, you know, as I as I enter kind of middle age, I'm realizing like I'm in this in-between zone, you know, where I've got kind of young people who are behind me and I've got my elders ahead of me and I'm holding this middle ground, you know, and it's hard. It's not easy, right? Um, it's not easy at all, at all, at all. But I also realize that I have an arsenal of information and experiences and skills to share. When I enter a room with young people, I come packing a lot in my toolbox. And I i don't think I've given myself permission before in my life to really recognize that, to recognize the value of that. Um, so now I'm deliberate about trying to find ways to be able to work with institutions um, that allow me to not just create, but also to incorporate um, interactions with younger people, with students, with, uh, technolo with technology that allows me to archive my work as well. I think it's a wonderful phase to be in and also with the, the notion of, of give back and paying forwards and being able to convey this knowledge for the next generation that's up and coming. 
As we close out today's conversation, please can you share a few words of inspiration, motivation, some of your poems to young women that are listening to us on the continent? Oh, I think it's such an exciting time to be an African woman artist. I have never in my life seen African creativity being centered in the way that it is. And also seeing African creatives being given the credit that they deserve for that creativity. The world has always been referencing Africa, has always been learning and borrowing and stealing from Africa and not giving us credit. But now we're in this phase where from fashion to music to film, uh, there's just there's just this explosion of African talent on the global stage. So I think make use of that. Don't be afraid of technology. Don't be afraid of social media. Don't be afraid of breaking boundaries with your work. Don't be afraid of working across mediums. Collaborate with as many artists as you can. Work with as many people from different fields as you can. Um, uh, Work across borders. Try to find as much institutional support as you can for your work and be conscious of the fact that you're not just creating what it is that you're creating now, but you're creating every work that you create is a step in your legacy. You know, you're building memory with what it is that you do. So be deliberate and be intentional about that. One of the hardest things about being an African artist is that because we are dealing with, you know, so many the failed institutions when it comes to supporting the arts, you know, every country, every country on this continent has a department of arts and culture, you know, but how many artists can say that they've received meaningful support in their lives and in their work from these institutions. So part of the challenge of being an African artist is you're not just making your work, but you're also an institution for yourself. I think thinking globally is empowering for me as a black woman artist, because if I just think about my little world in South Africa, that's very small. But if I think about a billion Africans on the continent, if I think about the diasporas in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in the Americas, in Europe, then I am a part of a formidable community that can allow me to find people who are interested in making work with me and supporting my work. And I think that that those possibilities are more alive now than they've ever been. I just I just came back from Nigeria from performing in Edo State at their inaugural education week. Um, I you know I'm I've been in collaboration with the University of Johannesburg and Malmo University in Sweden. Um, I've I've collaborated with an amazing amazing playwright and choreographer named uh, Alexandra Sutan who is uh, African woman but based in Belgium. Uh, I wrote poetry for a piece that she produced. Um, um, that was staged in Brussels. I didn't even get a chance to see it in my own with my own eyes. But my work is my work, and I say all of this to say that my work is coming alive in different parts of the world in ways that I could never imagine, and in ways that would that 20 years ago it would have taken me three times as long to be able to produce this work. So grab grab what the world is offering you with both hands and understand that there will be forces that try to work against you. But I've also found that, you know, when I try to use force 
brute force to resist oppression, I end up losing. I always lose. When I use my creativity to deconstruct oppression, I'm always better for it. And I always come out with something that I'm proud of. Thank you for sharing that wonderful message. And thank you once again for joining us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your platform. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Lebo Moshile, who is an award-winning poet, author, presenter, actress, and producer.